Who's the who's the uh, presenter? Who's the who's the presenter? special evening that we're going to have where Dr. Gold is going to discuss with me. I have a special relationship with Dory Gold. He was uh, a student in Shivata Mishtai year one. So uh, that makes me pretty old, but it doesn't make him so old. The second thing he did of great note was uh, he was ambassador of the State of Israel the United Nations in the first Netanyahu regime, I think. And since then, he's written numerous uh, books on uh, relation, our relations with various Arab countries. Very interesting. I've read some of them. And they uh, proved to be uh, enlightening and elucidating. Um, what we'd like to do is use his uh, experience tonight to help us solve a problem that we've come up against learning the sources. I would just uh, maybe briefly... Uh, remind uh, those of you with us and those of you who aren't with us during this learning what the issue is. First, the Mishnah says categorically, Ein podim et yeter al It means that when you come to an issue of uh, redeeming those who have been captured, um, don't pay more than they are worth. Of course, paying more than they are worth is not an easy thing to determine and what exactly their worth is. And then the Mishnah adds with Neitikun Olam. And this is further explained in the Gemara what Tikun HaOlam, what fixing the world is all about. Ibayalahu, the Gemara, Haimit Neitikun Olam, Mishum Duchukadisiburahu. One possibility is that the reference is to the difficulty that the community has in raising all of that money. You impoverish the community, you weaken the poor, you, there are no, uh, no chance for, uh, uh, no chance for um, uh, social uh, improvement and welfare. Yeah. Oh, Bill, what? Sorry, Yeah? permission, I just started recording now. Can you just repeat it very short? We said just one line, so the recording will be perfect, okay? Why, well, well, I started the recording. I did, yeah. Okay, just say it again, just to direct this. I have a double check, okay? Yeah, sure. It's been recorded. It's been recorded. And the second reason that's given, O Dilma, Vishum Delo Legarbu Velaite Tvei, that, I guess it means something like, um, they, you know, it'll just go on again and again. There'll be no end to it. There'll be no end to it at all. 
And these halachic sources are discussed in several Gemarot. We're not going to go through that now, but I would just like to show you the summarizing position of the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch deals with this question. Shulchan Aruch says, Ein podim ha-shvuyim The Shulchan Aruch just quotes, quotes the Mishnah. Quotes the Mishnah. But then it adds, at the end, he says, Aval Adam In other words, if you're paying for your own redemption, then there are no limits. If you have a lot of money, pay a lot of money. As long as the bo- the onus is not on the community. And then the Mishnah, the Shulchanach adds, means uh, somebody who the community is dependent upon. He's a great judge, he's a great decider. Oh, he's not yet a recognized scholar. But he's a clever fellow, a good student. Maybe in the next generation he will be. He will be a great man. Uh, those kinds of people, community leaders, are, are given a special relationship in this manner, and you're allowed to redeem them even if it costs you a lot of money. Then there was always this question about what if my wife is captured? Do I have to give all my money up for my wife or not? But anyway, we see that in the, in the Jewish sources, there's already some difficulty with determining uh, how much money you should pay. And the Gemara says, the Mishnah says, the Gemara says, the Shukhanah says, if it's going to cause great stress, like you, the money is going to go from the community and the community won't have the money or there's a chance that this will happen again and again and that other, um, other people will be captured. You should not, you should definitely not try to, um, you should definitely not try to save them. So that's the, the state of the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, maybe we'll get to the story of the Maharal somewhat later, but um, I'd like to just add one more thing. One of the students, the former students of the yeshiva, I'm not sure that Dory remembers him, Yosef Kanner, who has subsequently become a uh, Lubavitcher Chassid and lives in Baltimore, sent me today um, a note with some of the comments of the Lubavitcher Rebbe on a previous event, a uh, previous exchange of prisoner event. And this is what... Um, This is what the, I mean, I'd like to tell you what the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, but just one second. Fooling around a bit. Maybe it's here. Okay, it's there. Yeah. The Rebbe said, this is an unofficial translation of something the Rebbe said someplace. I don't know where that is, but he says, the Rebbe said, let me just go back one one, uh, note here. The Rebbe says, even those that dealt with sabotage, so far, even those that dealt with sabotage were not released because they did not want to surrender to terrorism 
Well, now they are releasing actual terrorists as well. Because the Rebbe felt that releasing terrorists, uh, even for Pidyon uh, Shvuyim, even to redeem those that were captured, was something that was unreasonable. And further, he says on this point, the Rebbe says, um, just one second. It is not just a single problematic matter. The entire system is bad and dangerous. A method of course for acting opposite of what Hashem promised and I make you go upright. In other words, you have to be recognize the validity of your position. And, uh, and the release of terrorists, the Rebbe says, you see the next paragraph, but I wasn't kept a secret. The other party knows the fact that he concludes that since it succeeded so far, Jewish newspapers still print later that these are blessed reigns to peace, peace for our children and grandchildren, even that there is no other way except this one may have to protect us for Hashem bring peace to Israel. And when the other side sees it, the Rebbe says, what should they do if not to continue with this method? In, in other words, any success that is granted to terrorists will breed more terror, and he indeed continues to heaven protect us, etc. So that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I mean, even though he uh, I mean, certainly was a, a, a halachic decider of note, thought that, uh, that uh, he, any, kind of, uh, any kind of trade with terror uh, which enabled the terror terrorists to claim victory was unacceptable. So we have the Mishnah, we have the Shulchan Aruch, and we have now the Rebbe. On the other hand, what we don't have is a source that tells us what might be a reasonable exchange of, of prisoners. Uh, so the first thing I would like to ask uh, Dr. Gold is, is um, oh, what is the line? I mean, how do you know when, when this, the payment far exceeds what is legitimate and acceptable to us. Dr. Gold. I don't hear you so well. Okay. Uh, um, is this better? Yeah, I think so. It will be better. Okay. I think an Israeli government that has to discuss the whole question of prisoner releases, whether in present with respect to actually, or in the past when these prisoner releases have occurred, I have a number of considerations they look at. The first might be, well, if we decide to release uh, terrorists, just large numbers of them, uh, a thousand or more, in exchange for a single uh, captured Israeli, does that incentivize those who uh, engage in kidnapping uh, for releasing uh, terrorists? Are we likely to see an escalation of uh, kidnapping efforts? I think on that initial question, um, I imagine there are different judgments, but it seems that probably the Hamas and other organizations try kidnapping regardless of whether an uh, agreement is reached in this case or in past cases. You have to take that as a given, and I think military planners have to take it for a given that this Hezbollah in the north or Hamas in the south will be seeking to get the really soldiers. And I'm not sure whether a change in their behavior would be caused by uh, Israeli agreement to Palestinian uh, uh, prisoners. The more complicated question, however, that I think the government will have to answer is whether a prisoner release will increase terrorism subsequently. 
uh, will, for example, those who are released with blood on their hands, who have engaged in uh, terrorist attacks in the past, will they return to terrorism? Will they organize terrorism? Will they bring a kind of professionalism that has been lacking in the level of the uh, current command structure in Hamas, and therefore make Hamas a far more lethal organization than it has been already? Um, the lesson of past prisoner releases, cumulative of 50 of those released end up going back to uh, terrorist activity. Uh, by the way, that's not just Israel's experience, it's the experience of others fighting international terrorism elsewhere. There have been many notable cases of uh, those who were not obeyed by the United States and given back to Saudi Arabia for retraining. Uh, those people have gone back in some cases to fight uh, terrorism. So whether you're talking about the global level or you're talking Certainly, a possibility that many more will turn to terrorism and that Israelis in the future exposed to these people. Uh, let me just add uh, two factors. One, of course, is if the people are released in the area of Samaria uh, and can easily um, penetrate uh, our borders from there, that's one case where the risks are much greater if they are released into the Gaza Strip uh, and the area is sealed off. Then certainly the level of risk would be uh, reduced. Another very important factor is the deployment of the IDF. Uh, back in the 1990s when we implemented the Oslo Agreement, Israel had withdrawn from population centers and basically on the Palestinian side and basically made Area A and parts of Area B areas of reduced military access. Today, in theory, if Israel has intelligence that on the corner of Baker Street and Main Street in Nablus, I'm just making up uh, there is a terrorist um, attack being planned, and there are suicide belts being manufactured, and the Palestinian security forces ignore the warning. Israel can go in at night and thwart uh, uh, an attack. Uh, that certainly makes it a little bit uh, easier for Israel to deal with uh, terrorism, es escalation of terrorism, given that it has complete access to the West Bank. If it only had partial access, it would probably be a much more dangerous proposition. These are the kinds of considerations that I imagine the Israeli government uh, will have to um, consider uh, when looking at uh, prisoner releases in the future. Uh, I, I just wondered, before we ask, uh, throw the floor open a little bit, um, Israel uh, suffers from a potential terrorist threat that is ongoing. And if we don't maintain a very high level of, uh, of defense, uh, then we can expect that the situation will get worse, even today. It's kind of containing a pressure cooker of some sort. Uh, do you mean to say that the pressure cooker will change, that there will be significant military change in the relationship between those in the pressure cooker and those keeping the top on the pressure cooker down? I mean, is there a kind of a, a lack of potential terrorists? And isn't it better to get an 18-year-old terrorist than a 40-year-old terrorist? Uh, I mean, like, how do, you weigh, how do you weigh this? I mean, it's true that there may be an attempt made by a released terrorist to terrorize. But isn't it true that, if not him, somebody else would have done it. I mean, 
that the military situation that we're in does not, at least it doesn't seem to me to change, or I don't know what number it is that released prisoners would cause a change. Uh, we are always besieged by terror. Well, what I would suggest is that uh, we have to look at the command structure of the terrorist organization. Because I think you're right. I mean, what's the difference if you have uh, a young guy who's a potential terrorist in the USA and another uh, young guy on the Palestinian side who is a uh, terrorist organization in the field of funds? Um, they're in both situations, you have the same problem. I, in my view, one has to look at senior command people who have come out. People are engineers of um, prominent terrorist attacks against Israel using suicide. Take, let's take the case of Marwan Barghouti, who's often in the news. If Marwan Barghouti um, has a history. Now, uh, Israeli court has determined that uh, five acts of murder. Anyone who reviewed the uh, documents received in our headquarters back in authorizing payment to uh, operatives who were engaged in suicide. One of his most potent uh, roles in the past was creating a whole framework that people know about called the National Islamic Forces umbrella group that coordinated between Hamas and Fatah when they wanted to put a person like that back in the field where he would bring about um, uh, some kind of coordination between uh, Fatah and Hamas today who are complete rivals. Uh, that could very much change the uh, uh, constellation of forces that Israel will face in the future. Uh, and there are many others and many other names one could mention of individuals uh, who could have a, an impact because of their senior command positions rather than just being foot soldiers of the war or in the, in the war of terrorism against Israel. Uh, isn't this uh, connected somehow to the general question of whether you feel, or one feels, that there is a possibility for some sort of peaceful resolution of this, you know, of the Palestinian-Israeli confrontation, or if you feel there is no possibility of a peaceful resolution, then why add enemies to the, to the list of enemies that are out there already? since nothing is ever going to change. But, for example, the Hamas. Uh, do you think that... Do you, let's say the Hamas. Do you think that uh, they would see themselves as more willing to go into a peace, a peaceful negotiations because they achieved a, a major success with this prisoner exchange, or uh, would they just become more belligerent and bellicose as a result of this prisoner exchange? It's a very good question here, Robert Robinger. Um, I think the um, reason why some analysts might believe that Hamas could be seen as being uh, more of a, a potential um, pragmatic player is because for the first time now, we're using a German intermediary with uh, Hamas, and we're not using Egyptians or some other Arab contact or Islamic contact. And if uh, Hamas is already working with a European country in order to um, cut a deal with Israel, then maybe um, Hamas will feel compelled 
uh, to be more pragmatic. It's not something I believe in. I think this is an approach which uh, some people are voicing. And by the way, we are seeing, I would say, in the last year since um, Operation Cast Lead in the Gaza Strip, um, considerable evidence of, um, of British and American and other Western um, uh, sources that are calling for bringing Hamas into the political process. Uh, my own view is that Hamas has had since 2006 many opportunities to utter the magic words that they accept past agreements with Israel, uh, that they recognize uh, Israel as a fact, that it's right to exist, uh, that they renounce terrorism as an instrument to advance their political aims. They have refused to uh, agree to these three fundamental conditions laid out by the quartet, that um, combination of the U.S., Russia, EU, and the U.N., who have insisted on these, these conditions be uh, fulfilled by Hamas, for Hamas to be a player. And the reason why Hamas has not accepted these conditions is its commitment to its uh, jihadist ideology. Uh, I mean, it had a lot to gain just by mouthing these words. It could have gotten a huge amount of European financial assistance. It would have been in a very strong position to convince Israel uh, to remove uh, any uh, closures on uh, passageways that Israel has put up from time to time, uh, but it has refused to do so because it's steadfast in its ideology. Uh, something I think would be interesting for the Europeans to see who are telling Israel to talk with Hamas, who believe that as a result of this uh, current round of negotiation on a prisoner release, that Hamas is more moderate. In fact, Hamas shows signs of actually identifying with the most radical jihadi organizations in the world. Uh, we're putting up on the um, uh, website a poster that was actually seized by the Israeli army between 2003 and uh, 2004, I believe in Janine and Hebron. Now, this poster is a kind of um, jihad's greatest hits. Uh, it's a poster which um, uh, was printed by Hamas and distributed by Hamas. Uh, you see the uh, man on the left wearing a kafiyah, Sheikh Ahmed Gassim, the founder of Hamas, uh, who um, is surrounded by a number of interesting individuals. Uh, to his right is Khatab, um, one of the uh, commanders of the uh, Chechen Mujahideen, and to his left is Shamil Besayev, Another Chechen commander was responsible for attacking a, a Russian school a number of years ago where about 200 children were killed. But of course, to the right of Khatab is a very known uh, personage to uh, people who have been around since 2001, and that's Osama bin Laden. The uh, poster indicates the different fields of jihad where the common struggle is being waged. And those words in Arabic uh, include Chechnya, Afghanistan, Balkans, Kashmir, Palestine, and Lebanon. Why is this poster so interesting, and why is it illustrative of an of a, of a, um, attitude you see in Hamas? Uh, it's because it shows that Hamas sees itself as part of a, a global movement. Hamas is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, that extremist organization established in 1928 before the rise of Israel. Uh, which seeks to reestablish the caliphate. That is uh, Hamas's ultimate goal, 
and Hamas coordinates with a lot of dangerous organizations that normally one doesn't associate with it. So that's the long answer to your short question, which is I don't see Hamas becoming more moderate as a result of these exchanges, despite the fact that the Germans are now involved as being intermediaries between Israel and Hamas in the discussions over the election. The people say that uh, just as the PLO needed a kind of a war in order to create a history for itself, even a losing war, whereas um, the PLO is certainly not included in this group that, you, uh, that you're talking about. Uh, it may be that the Hamas uh, in, in, um, in the Aza also needed a war that they would lose in order to create a kind of myth about themselves and about how they stood fast and, and stood up to, uh, to Israel. And maybe since they have, none of these people here are responsible for a, an indigenous population. None of these people that I mentioned, alive or dead, were really responsible for the government of a, of a group of, of Arabs who had a territory. And I, that may make a difference. Uh, you know, people have a territory, who have a government, who, who want to order things for their good and for the good of the people. Uh, sometimes, uh, I think, more easily swayed away from another method once they can claim that they, that they, they claim this mythology, that they stood up to Israel in the war, you know, Israel with the tanks and the planes, and that they couldn't break them. I mean, it may be that Israel wasn't trying to break them, but it, there's a mythology that nations seem to need about themselves, uh, wars that they have um, endured, and, and life that they have refashioned. And maybe on that basis, the Hamas, I mean, it's true you have a poster, but there are a million and a half people in answer who, who uh, would like the Hamas to make their lives better and not worse, and given the opportunity to do that, having endured this or that, maybe, maybe they are more ready, just as the PLO in some way was more ready for, uh, for this kind of a breakthrough. Why not hope for the best in this case? Well, I think it's always good to have hope, and it's always good to try. However, if I want to draw the comparison between Hamas and the PLO, there are huge differences, uh, most important being that when, Hamas, when the PLO, Yasser Arafat, came to agree to the um, negotiations that led to the Oslo Agreement in 1993, two of their main sponsors, the Soviet Union and Saddam Hussein Iraq, had collapsed. The Soviet Union had fallen apart, it no longer existed. And uh, Saddam Hussein was defeated in the 1991 Gulf War. So, um, the PLO was forced to jump on the right side of history, to reach out to Israel as a means of getting to the White House lawn, which Yasser Arafat managed to do on September 13, 1993. In the case of Hamas, their reading of history is very different. They see the United States as a declining power. And they see uh, their, basically have two sponsors. Their original sponsor, which is the Jihadi Network on the Sunni side, led by the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, they see the Muslim Brotherhood getting stronger in Egypt and uh, being a strong contestant for power when Mubarak passes from the scene. Um, on the other side, 
uh, they have been backed for the last number of years by Iran, which is, despite its domestic problems, getting closer every day to a nuclear weapons capability. So they see the balance of power in the world changing. They don't see their principal sponsors in decline. If uh, tomorrow, for example, uh, the Iranian regime would be overthrown and a um, more pro-Western regime came to replace it, that would create a situation somewhat similar to what happened to the PLO in 1993. But at present, despite the um, heroic pictures of what's going on in the streets of Tehran, uh, we're not there yet, and uh, Hamas is not about to change. Um, and remember, it may just be a poster, but it's a poster reflective of a um, kind of education which uh, Palestinian children and, and older people are receiving incitement that they are hearing uh, in the Gaza Strip in the Hamas educational system. They are identifying with a global jihadi movement. They are not seeing themselves as part of a 1960s um, third world movement overthrowing of the colonial yoke. Um, I, I just want uh, one more thing, perhaps. It seems to me that over the last 20 years, our position, the position of the State of Israel on this matter has eroded like slices of salami, and that the price that is being paid keep, just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and it seems that we are, we're going to pay it, but I don't think uh, overall that it's easy to say that our military situation has gotten worse. I mean, it was more, it's been more or less the same for the last um, 15 years, um, you know, with bad and, and force and uh, a difficulty. And uh, I, I don't see that there's been much of a change one way or the other and that the uh, the, the real issue is that we don't, we're not able to penetrate the ideological walls that the um, Arabs have built up against us in general, and that the Palestinians and the Azatians have, have adopted, you know, as their own ideologies. Is there any way that we can, can deal with this? I mean, can we, can we do something that will make them think better of us? I mean, I think we have to think better of us. I think we're okay, but I mean, I think that they are, as you say, they are ideologically committed to a position which uh, implies the destruction of the state of Israel. I mean, how do you change that? Well, I think those are things that change historically over time. I don't know whether there's like a, a program that you can adopt, like uh, you know, have Arabic radio broadcasts to talk about uh, you know, tolerance or something of that sort. I think that that's something that can only evolve as a result of uh, historical development. And there are historical developments that occur. First of all, on the military side, there are places where Israel has not succeeded. There are places where Israel has succeeded, as shown in these wars. Uh, it did not succeed in the Gaza Strip because uh, Gaza could be reinforced from the outside through the smuggling tunnels from Egypt into uh, Gaza through Rafiah. And uh, the area was therefore um, uh, completely open to reinforcement. That's the first rule in insurgency warfare. They need to have a, uh, an area of reinforcement. Uh, and that's why our military victories in Gaza have only been very limited. 
Uh, in the West Bank, people don't really think about this. We had an operation called Defense of Shield in 2002. I mean, you remember, life in Jerusalem was intolerable. Everyone who had children went out to a coffee shop or any place of a, of a, where, where there was a public gathering where they were concerned that a suicide bomber would walk in and uh, threaten them. And parents were talking to children over their cell phones. You know, don't sit in the front, sit in the back, go someplace else, sit someplace else on the bus, don't go to that SIM card, don't go here. And that all changed with a major military operation in 2002 called Operation Defensive Shield, which defeated the suicide bombing. It dropped dramatically from 150 Israelis dead a month to very few until zero. And so we can win these wars if they're engaged properly. In the case of the West Bank and Judea and Samaria, the area of reinforcement of Hamas and the violent organizations was um, never opened up because we never got out of the Jordan Valley. But that's just to make the point of comparison on the military side. On the political side, something's happening in the Middle East which people have pointed out but really haven't understood the, the importance of it. And that is the Sunni Muslims today in the Arab world and Israel share a common threat to Iran. And... Um, you know, you're not going to get the Saudi foreign minister who just said the other day that Israel's a spoiled country. We admit that. But the Saudis will allow the editor-in-chief of one of their most important pan-Arab dailies, Ashark al-Awsat, to actually write in an editorial that Israel is not the threat, Iran is. So I believe that over time, whether there is a military confrontation with Iran in a period of Iranian retaliation, or there's no military confrontation with Iran, and Iran just gets the bomb. In either case, this can lead to a transformation of the Middle East. What led to the European Union being formed as a political body and the end of the French-German rivalry was not the European coal and steel community. It was not trade and economics, as some people in Israel believe. What led to the end of that enmity in the beginning of a European community of cooperation was the Soviet threat over all of Western Europe. I'm not saying, oh, isn't it wonderful that we have an Iranian threat today, but I am saying is that a kind of silver lining or byproduct of this threat is the fact that uh, Sunni Arabs in the Gulf and Israeli Jews here in the Eastern Mediterranean have common interests. I don't think we should try and realize those common interests by having um, big conferences like in Annapolis, uh, as occurred in 2007, and by quietly working together to form the seeds of a different Middle East. Not a new Middle East, a different Middle East. And uh, maybe it's possible through common interests facing a similar threat to actually create a different reality in this region at the time. Uh, was what we have to do is... Um make sure there's an overwhelming threat that uh, threatens both the Arabs in the Middle East and the uh, Israelis in the Middle East. It would be a little hard to, uh, to organize on our own. But as you say, it may be that it'll happen. I'd like to... It's happening. Yeah, it's happening. Okay. I'd like, uh, I'd like uh, to give opportunity to people who are here to ask uh, Dr. Gold some questions. Um, 
so far the comments that have come in have been either agreeing with one side or another, but we would like to hear a question that, um, that would direct uh, Dr. Golden a particular, in a particular direction, a particular issue. Does anybody have a question? Let me just check. Um, questions and answers. Okay. It's up I in one chat. Tommy Diamond. You do? Oh, what does he say? He says, if I am correct, the halacha mentions a possible financial exchange to redeem a captive. But this option was laid out before Israel had a military. I would have thought it was a Jewish state. What about the option uh, of military retrieval? Okay. Well, I guess I'm to answer that. I assume that option doesn't exist, otherwise we would have done it. I assume. Well, again, I, I'm not speaking about... Oh, Rami Diamond is a female, okay. Um, um, I'm not speaking about the particular case of Gilad Shalit, but certainly Israel has um, planned military operations in the past and executed them when it was doable, and the most famous of which, of course, was the case of Entebbe. Um, but um, I think I'd be mistaken and irresponsible to try and uh, lay out or consider whether military um, rescue of, um, in the present circumstances is relevant. Um, it is true that the halacha seems to deal with cases that were cases of individuals, individuals and kidnappers that were sort of like a world in which that was a way to earn a living. But um, the interesting case, it was the case of the Maharal, of the Maharami Rittenberg, I'm sorry, the Maharami Rittenberg who was captured. But he was captured because the king, Rudolf, didn't want the Jews to leave his domain. He wanted them to stay to make money and to pay taxes. And they had decided, the Jews had decided to leave. And uh, one of the leaders of that uh, of that was the um, um, was the Maram Rutenberg, so that if they would have released him, it would have had uh, much wider much wider uh, political implications. And he didn't want that. He wanted the Jews to leave uh, Germany in order to protect themselves. So he refused to let himself be uh, ransomed uh, because he knew that uh, that would work against uh, his own community. Um, today, uh, I mean, we're not going to talk about Gidon Shalit, but, but in Israel, uh, the idea of bringing back uh, more many for one uh, is somehow connected with the war that we are waging. This is really an act of war. It's like, it's like capturing a hill or, or, uh, or shooting a, a tank battle. Uh, it's, it's part of the war. And um, it takes you back a few steps. It takes you back a few steps. And you don't, um, uh, in terms of the war. And that's always a dangerous, that's always a dangerous thing to, uh, to do. Um, if there are any more chats, I, I don't see the chats, Dr. Gold. Do you see, the, I only see the ones that are sent to me. But uh, you see the one from Austin, Texas, from Claire, also known as Hannah. Right. Uh, 
you mentioned that 50% of prisoners released in prison exchange and subsequently participate in terrorist activities. Am I understanding that these people also participate in terrorist activities prior to their arrest? Yes, these are not people who were there on traffic charges. Concerning the 50% who do not participate in terrorist activities following their release, have these people participated in terrorist activities prior to their imprisonment in Israeli jails? Yes. We're talking about 50% people released who previously dealt with or were involved in terrorism, 50% go back to terrorism, and 50% are um, desist. There's another one here from Frank Stetchel. To all participants, has Fatah been involved in negotiating the recent election lead with the PA's involvement? Could be a good thing in terms of moderating Hamas. Well, I'm not speaking about election lead specifically tonight, but I will say that the PA and Hamas are complete rivals, and I don't see how PA involvement in this matter could uh, make this any better. One thing I do would expect, however, is that uh, the PA has responsibility also for Gaza by virtue of the fact that um, at least nominally Mahmoud Abbas is the president of both the PA, the Fatah-led PA in, uh, in Ramallah, and um, the uh, Hamas entity as well. And uh, certainly the PA, which uh, does, uh, is active in uh, international bodies, uh, should be responsive to Israeli calls for getting the Red Cross to visit actually um, one of the biggest failures in the last number of years is our failure to get a Red Cross visit to actually He has been taken as a prisoner. He should be given the rights of other people who are prisoners of war as well. Um, can, can you just explain that when you say that the P, that Muhammad Abbas is the, also the head of the government in Aza, but I mean obviously he's not the head of anything in particular in Aza. Well, he, he, I'm saying that there's a kind of um, formal responsibility he still has. He, uh, there is no um, PA president in Gaza. There is no Hamas president. There's a Hamas prime minister, uh, uh, Ismail Haniyeh. But nominally, Ismail Haniyeh would come under the PA president, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, who is the de facto president. I say that because the PA is uh, very willing to use its international connections to the PLO to seek um, military or to seek indictments of Israeli officers abroad, to seek the uh, use of the um, UN uh, Human Rights Council uh, to activate the whole process that led to the Goldstone Report. And so if they're taking responsibility to activate international bodies to investigate Israel's operations in the Gaza Strip, uh, they should become the address for seeking um, the uh, Red Cross visits to actually uh, Not that I expect anything to come out of it, but if they uh, claim that they have responsibility in this area, they should be held responsible for everything else in relationship to the Gaza But But aren't the Hamas of Aza a kind of breakaway country like Czechoslovakia? Or, I mean, why do you... I mean, what's left of the connection other than it used to be, but it doesn't exist any longer? Uh, the uh, Gaza, formally speaking, Gaza does not come under the Palestinian government of Salam Fayyad, who is the Palestinian Prime Minister in Ramallah. But still, uh, technically, Mahmoud Abbas is the president of the entire 
an area of the West Bank that has Gaza Strip, where the West Bank we control parts of still. And um, as a result, uh, the PA should be in address for Israeli grievances vis-a-vis -vis Gaza as well. The PA is willing to make representations to the United Nations for what goes on in the Gaza Strip. So if they are making those representations, they are assuming certain responsibilities. All I'm saying is we should also take the gloves off when we talk about uh, the Palestinian Authority uh, 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 with reference to Gaza and not just with reference to the West Bank. Uh -huh. um, okay. Are there any other questions? Just to check the chat here. Does somebody want to ask a question? Let me just see. What about the military belief that no man gets left behind, taking military actual increase in morale of soldiers, which will enable them to fight better, as a result, save more lives? Isn't this halakhic objective to save as many lives as possible? Well, that's really, if we're speaking about halakhic objectives, it's rather Gravinder's province. So I don't know if you've heard of this. Well, I mean, uh, um, in, in modern uh, Jewish history, the question of armies has been readdressed by Poskin, the Tzitzeliezer, the Tzitzeliezer in several Shuvot, uh, written uh, around the time of the uh, uh, establishing of the State of Israel, said that, uh, look, you can't apply the general rules of pikoch nefesh and saving their life to warfare. I mean, everybody understands when you go to war, some people are going to be killed. And since some people are going to be killed, uh, it's got to, uh, it, it can't fall under the same rubric of uh, having to save every life at all costs. But once you are committed to saving the community, then uh, you're allowed to go to war. It's, such, uh, there is a category of warfare called Muhammad Rashut. I mean, you're allowed to make the decision to go to war in certain cases, especially when you feel that it's necessary in order that the community should continue to exist. So that, um, that um, while it's true that releasing prisoners is very important, but saving the entire community is probably more important. And if you can determine that releasing the prisoners will weaken your position as a military force, then you, um, then you should not try to release the prisoners, or you should try to release them in a, in, as part of the war, and not as, uh, not as part of some other gambit. So, no, I mean, the halacha does allow you to go to war. The, the halacha does allow you to protect yourself. The, the halacha does allow you to make these kinds of decisions, especially by people who are experts, who are knowledgeable, and who are able to make these decisions on, on solid basis, which is why we're talking to Dr. Gold tonight. Because the halachist, while he may know many things about many things, is limited when it comes to uh, other kinds of knowledge that he doesn't have. And so there's a dependency that the halachist has, just like there's a dependency of the halachist on a doctor, there's a dependency of the halachist on a political analyst. And the political analyst has to decide whether war is, uh, is necessary. And the political analyst has to decide whether right now, at this moment, we are at war. Because it makes, that makes a difference. 
that makes a difference. I mean, if you're at peace, if a war comes to an end, then you have exchange of prisoners, massive exchange of prisoners. Uh, so the assumption is the war is over. No one's going to come in and, and take a gun and shoot anybody in the streets of Tel Aviv after the war with Egypt is over. But if the war is going on, and this is just another act of war, right, another kind of war, then the decision has to be made in a different way, but it is certainly, it is certainly permitted, all the Rabbonim who talk about this today, all agree, all agree that, uh, that certainly uh, prisoners should be released and a price should even be paid, but not any price, not all prices that you could imagine. So that's, uh, I mean, that's a halachic answer, which of course leaves unknown what exactly it is that we're allowed to, what we're allowed to do. I mean, someone has to make those parameters clear, uh, and those people should be the experts in assessing the military situation out in the field. Uh, I, have, I have a question for Robert Gravinder. <laughs> um, this whole issue of Tidion Shulim, um, certainly the um, historical cases of Pidyon in the Middle Ages occurred when the Jewish people were dispersed, were in the diaspora, and uh, there were there was a calculation that Jewish community in Germany or in Spain or elsewhere would have to make when it would uh, approach the issue. But when you have a sovereign state of Israel and a Jewish state created, how does the halachic reality change and the considerations of uh, the halacha change? I think that what, what, what changes is that states engage in war as states. And their consideration is their own sustainability. I mean, in the Middle Ages, the Jews were small communities. And they made their judgments on that basis. If they thought that they had the money to pay, they paid. And if they thought that, uh, that this was a plot that would undermine the uh, economy of the Jewish community, they didn't pay. I think that uh, the state of Israel, as a state, has certainly got the right and the obligation to consider the situation of the state and what will happen. I mean, again, uh, uh, since the war is going on, to some extent, I mean, there is a war between Israel and its neighbors, um, the exchange of, of prisoners for a prisoner has to be seen as a, as a military action. That's what I, I said before, and I think that the post can agree with that. They, they, everybody, it's just that, that what was left unknown is what's a reasonable price. And it seems that over history, the reasonable price seems to keep going up, which means that, to me, that the people who are in charge of making this decision are not so concerned about re-releasing massive numbers of potential terrorists because they feel that there's no real military, uh, no real military concern. Now, I don't know this for a fact. No one has said this to me. But if you look at the history, you see that there was a once they change, they would exchange a prisoner for a prisoner, then a prisoner for ten. And then a prisoner of hundreds, and now they want prisoners of thousands, and, and nobody says this number is unreasonable. Uh, so I guess that it, it really doesn't work that way. That uh, that these people do not uh, do not imply 
a great military danger. Right? There, are plenty of, there are plenty of terrorists, there are plenty of young people who want to be terrorists, there are plenty of people to train the terrorists, and, and they seem to be getting a lot of arms into Gaza and into Lebanon, so that uh, what difference does it make if they get a few more guys who want to uh, sign up? Uh, they have plenty of people like that. So it seems to me, even though I can't say that I, that I know, I, I don't know anything. I just know what I read uh, from time to time in the newspaper. So the halacha says you have to protect the state. You're at war, you have to act like you're at war. However, the exact parameters are not clear to the halacha, and therefore they are dependent on the, on the experts, right? the people who deal with these kinds of things all the time. I want to thank Dr. Gold um, for this evening, which was, for me, very enlightening, and I'm sure it was for those of you who participated. I hope we'll be able to do this again sometime. And um, I wish you well, Dr. Gold, and I will, uh, we will talk. But uh, for the time being, I think we're going to close the session. Well, thank you very much, Rabbi Brown. It was my pleasure as well. Uh, I must apologize to many people who sent in chats. I think there's been a lot of interest in this broadcast, and it just indicates how we have to follow up and do more. So um, let's hope we can find subjects that maybe uh, inspire us on the positive side and not just the uh, very difficult but real dilemmas that a Jewish state has to face with uh, the question of the Jewish review. And... Um, we can see how uh, our Jewish past and Jewish history is uh, affecting the rebuilding of the Jewish state to build, build a state of justice and a state that will eventually reach peace. Thank you very much. Amen. Amen. Be well.